so, so let, let me begin by paying my acknowledgements to the owners of the lands upon we meet, um, pay my respects to elders past and present. Um, so so it's, uh, I'm surprised to have written this book. In fact, I'm surprised to have written um, any, any book for the public. Um, I, I, five years ago, I wrote, I've written three books now. This is the, the, the third in a series of books about artificial intelligence. Um, and I wrote the first book five years ago when artificial intelligence started to, to turn up everywhere. Um, I don't think you can open a newspaper today without reading multiple stories about how AI is taking on some interesting, sometimes challenging, new task in our lives. And so I thought um, I should try and explain to, to the wider public about what this technology is that's starting to appear and transform our lives and later rest some of the myths and misconceptions because certainly back then a lot of what people were talking about was more Hollywood than reality. So I wrote um, the first book, which was about what artificial intelligence is, where it came from, and where it was today. And the funny thing when I finished writing that book five years ago was that no one asked me questions about the book. They asked me all questions about what artificial intelligence was going to do to our lives in the future. So then I wrote the second book, 2062, which, as the title suggests, is looking at the future, looking at 2062, um, trying to answer the questions I thought people were, were asking then about well, what happens when we have machines that are smart as us, or what happens when we have machines that are even smarter than us. Um, and then, again, no one asked me questions about the content of that book. They asked me questions about well, what the more pressing ethical challenges that AI was posing right here and now, um, which is why I wrote the third book, um, which was to try and answer those questions. So I'm going to listen expectantly to your questions tonight because uh, I suspect there'll be a, that will have to be my fourth book where I'll try and answer the questions that, that I hadn't answered in the last three books. Um, in fact, there was, there was a precise day in 2018, I think it was, when I realized I ought to write this book. Um, I, I get rung up by the media quite often and asked questions to try and explain something about artificial intelligence and in the last couple of years increasingly about challenging aspects of how artificial intelligence is being introduced. And I remember a particular day when the phone started ringing and I started receiving um, calls from the media to try and explain what had happened at the Google uh, conference. Google have an annual conference, the I.O. conference every year in California, where they introduce the latest uh, shiny technologies. And they had this wonderful demo. And if you, if you haven't seen the demo, I strongly encourage you, you go to, go to YouTube and type in the words duplex. Duplex is the name of the latest intelligent assistant. It's sort of Siri on steroids that Google have developed, and they're now actually, um, it's now available in, um, it's been rolled out in a number of countries. I'm not sure it's yet available here in Australia, but it's certainly available in the United States and a few other places. Um, and it is an intelligent assistant. It is actually remarkably intelligent. It, it, it can't do everything that your intelligent assistant could do, a human could do, but it, it can. You can ask it, for example, to, to book a restaurant table for you. You say, I'd like to go to, to this particular restaurant at 8 o'clock um, with three friends tomorrow night. Can you 
organize that for me and it will ring up the restaurant and have a conversation. It will ask them, is, you know, have you got a table available at 8? And they'll say, sorry, there are no ta tables available at 8. Would you like it at 8.30? And then it will answer, you know, how many people, are there any, are there any dietary requests? It will have a decent conversation with you. Or, or you can ask it to, to ring up and have, um, you know, book you a hair, haircut. And again, it, it's very impressive. I've played the, played the demo to a number of people and said, oh, who's the computer? Is it the person making the call or the person receiving the call? And it's pretty much a coin toss. People really can't tell. In, in most, people, um, most people actually say it's probably it's, it's the person receiving the call. It's actually the person making the call or the computer making the call. Um, and one reason why that is, um, and certainly something that the media got very um, very concerned about was that the computer ums and ahs like a person. And there's no reason to, if you're writing a computer program, there's, well, there's no reason why it should um and ah. I mean, you go out of your way to make it um and ah. Um, why is that? Because you want to deceive people. Well, I mean, being generous, you might say, you want to put people, up, uh, you want to make people feel relaxed feel it's, it's more human than it is. But ultimately, it's an act of deception um, that they were trying to be deceptive. And, and worse than that, uh, and indeed, when you've heard this story, you might think that I mistitled the book Machines Behaving Badly. Probably I should have titled the book Companies Behaving Badly. Uh, so worse than that, not only is the computer designed to be deceptive, I, I know a couple of people quite high up in Google, and I know that the, they, employ, they employ ethicists, people to help them think through some of the ethical challenges that this new technology is posing. And I do know that those people quite clearly told senior management that they shouldn't put this demo on. They should, put a, they should have a warning at the start saying, well, I'm Toby's computer, I'm ringing you up to, to make a booking for Toby, um, but I'm not a person. Um, and Google's management pushed back against the idea that they, you should do this, that it would have spoiled the, the impact of the demo. And the demo did. People gasped. I remember watching it um, when, when, I, when it came out. People in the audience uh, in, in California gasped because they, they were, it was such a convincing example of a computer passing as a as a human. Um, and so Google were told, the management of Google were told that they should have put a warning, just like a, you know, when you, when you record, when you ring someone up and they say that this telephone call might be recorded. Welcome, Andrew. <laughs> I'll just, Thank I'll, you, Toby. Great to be with you. Uh, I'll, I'll just finish the story and then we can start the conversation. And, and then I started getting more telephone calls about another technical fail. Um, this was uh, the upcoming, uh, upcoming royal event in which um, a media company, Sky News, were going to be using face recognition software to automatically identify celebrities and then name them on the screen without any consent at all from anyone. And again, the media were somewhat um, worried about well, what happens when this technology is widely used, what happens to our privacy. And I, and I realized two things, and, then, and I'll hand over to Andrew, which is that it's now a 24-7 job answering the media's concerns about the, the latest technical fails. 
Um, and that secondly, and this is more importantly, and this is, this is actually a, a lot of uh, what I say in the book, which is that most of this is just bad behavior, old-fashioned bad behavior. Um, ringing, you know, knocking on someone's door and pretending to be someone else is bad behavior. If a company employs people to do that, that's behaving rather badly. Um, equally, invading people's privacy, whether it's with a technology or whatever, is something that we always think of as bad behavior. So there's a lot of um, ethics washing going on where people are claiming there are new problems where, in fact, maybe the technology has put it on steroids, but much of it, I think, is old-fashioned bad behavior. Thank you. Uh, well, uh, Toby, thank you very much for coming here tonight. I should apologise to you and to the audience for, uh, I think, this the first ever time I've been late to one of these events. Uh, aptly, it was because a machine behaved badly. Uh, part of my electorate is uh, the Jervis Bay Territory, and I've uh, uh, just gotten a Tesla. And uh, Teslas are wonderful when they work. Uh, but uh, mine did not want to charge with the supercharger on the way back. So uh, an, an apt illustration, albeit uh, one I'm apologetic for. Uh, Toby, it is a wonderful book and takes us into uh, realms that I think uh, you're far more expert on than uh, most people in the room. Can you just start off by defining artificial intelligence for us, please? It, it's a difficult thing to define, but that's not surprising because intelligence is difficult to define. Mm. We, don't, we don't have a very good definition of intelligence. It's not the thing that intelligence tests measure. Intelligent tests measure your ability to take intelligence tests, and there's huge cultural biases. And intelligence has many different facets. There's many different things we do, and there's many different types of intelligence. There's emotional intelligence and social intelligence and mathematical intelligence. Um, but broadly speaking, you can say that AI is trying to get computers to do things that when humans do them, we say they require intelligence. Uh, and that includes perceiving the world, so it includes the cameras on your, on your Tesla that see the road and follow the white lines and um, will um, help you drive somewhat autonomously sometimes. Um, it also includes um, Siri, things that understand, perceive speech, not just vision, um, and then reason about those problems, um, and then um, learn from uh, the environment. So a lot of our intelligence are not things that we were born with. You couldn't, when you were born, you, you couldn't read, you couldn't write, you couldn't do economics, um, you didn't know how to debate other politicians. All the things that you now do were things that you learned over the course of, t over the course of time. And an increasing amount of artificial intelligence is a subfield of artificial intelligence called machine learning, where we are teaching computers to learn. It's learning, but not like human learning, and it's a bit deceptive to to, but it, it, computers do actually learn how to do tasks. I mean, the, the dirty secret is that no one knows how to program a computer to recognize a stop sign. We tried to program that by hand for 20 years and failed. And then we realized, well, we can give the computer lots of examples. Here's lots of stop signs. Here's lots of yield signs and lots of go signs. And the computer learns to distinguish between the two. Like we learn, some, somewhat, but somewhat differently, to, to see things when we're born. 
So you quote Neil Postman that uh, technology giveth and technology taketh away. And you have these lovely examples of the steam engine kick-starting the, the uh, Industrial Revolution, but of course uh, exacerbating climate change. Uh, you talk about the 747 accelerating the spread of people, but also the spread of disease. Uh, that, that, that's a fantastic example because in 1969, when the 747 first took off, people forgot we were in the middle of the Hong Kong flu, which killed four million people. You know, it was one of the last really serious pandemics. And the 747 taking off, of course, gave us many things. It gave us cheap international travel. It made the world a much smaller place. But undoubtedly, it meant that the pandemic we've just we've been living through for the last two years uh, was much more severe and worse because once it left Wuhan, it quickly spread to almost every continent on the, on the planet, almost every country on the world was very quickly infected. So Courtesy tell us, of the 747. Absolutely. Tell us in the context of uh, artificial intelligence, we'll talk a, a, about a range of the downsides, but in what ways do you see technology giveth uh, for artificial intelligence? How will it make our lives better? Yeah, that, so we, we, sh we should be optimistic. Um, and uh, the, the simple answer is the four Ds the dirty, the dull, the difficult, and the dangerous. Machines can be, in many respects, our slaves. They, they, we don't have to worry about them because they're not conscious, they're not sentient, and they can do all the dull, repetitive things in our lives. So, you know, one of the legitimate concerns that many people have, of course, is the impact it's going to have on our working lives. And that's something, we, that's a serious conversation we definitely should have. But equally, when people tell me a particular job is now being somewhat automated, or part, typically it's parts of this particular job have now been automated, I normally say, well, we should celebrate. Because it tells me that that was a dull, repetitive thing, and we should probably never have got humans to do that in the first place. And humans now have been liberated from that, and as long as those people still are being finding gainful employment and gainful use in their lives, and and have you know, enough to, to feed themselves and clothe themselves and their families, then we should be celebrating that, that machines now are doing those things that weren't fitting for humans to do. And then on the, uh, on the downside, uh, you know, one of the reasons that you say artificial intelligence can cause problems is, is because of the people who design it. Um, you say that AI attracts odd people. Uh, <laughs> tell I, us, I include myself amongst that, right? And, and you also, you talk about what you call the sea of dudes problem at uh, artificial intelligence conferences. And also this, um, this idea that a range of artificial intelligence researchers read Anne Rand, you know, not just as kids, but actually as grown-ups. Name their um, kids after Anne Rand. And uh, name their company is after uh, characters in the fountainhead, yes. Yeah, th th yes, I, I do think, it, it's hard to think of a revolution that's going to change, that, that ch has changed the world, that was driven by such a small number of people mm. and such a, such a insular group of people. Um, if, you know, if AI has the impact that people talk about, it is, you know, AI is going to be the new electricity, AI is going to add, 15% to the world's GDP in the, the next um, five or six years. Um, and yet, PwC did an estimate in 2017 that there is only 10,000, there are 10,000 people on the planet today with a PhD in AI. There's half a dozen in this room. Um, and there's, you know, there's, 
there's um, you know a thousand times that. That's it. That's the um, and it's a technology that just does require a significant amount of expertise. Does typically require a PhD to work out how to drive these these technologies. Um, and many of them, as you say, many of them are white male people like myself. Um, many of them are, shall we say, on the spectrum. Uh, there's a funny story in the in the book where I talk about how my my wife, when we're sitting at the airport going off to one of these AI conferences, she'll say, "That's one of yours." She'll look at someone from a hundred yards, and she can she can, and I'll say, "Yeah, how did you know?" Um, yes, and so, uh, I, I don't think that's very healthy, and certainly there are plentiful examples about how. The technology is not built in, a, in as inclusive a way as it could be because there aren't the, the right questions being asked. There are only white male people in the room and we're not thinking about half of the world's population, all the women. Uh, we're not thinking about all the minorities. We're not, we're not realizing, we haven't tested the code on people of color and discovering that uh, it doesn't work. And there's, there's, there's so many examples, I mean, um, of, of how people roll out the technology and then they discover the facial, facial recognition doesn't work on people of color. Or the British Home Office passport app doesn't recognize black people because, they're, because you're not allowed to smile in the photograph and black people have, have you know, pink lips and that look, that's mistaken for a smile. Um, and, and so many examples have, of where um, they haven't thought about, uh, about being inclusive. Um, and then there's, I think then there's, you know, as you hinted at it, with, I think there's, there's a philosophical challenge, which is you're trying to be master of this computer universe. Um, and you are. I mean, it's, it's when I, I talk about the moment when I wrote my first AI program and it did something that I didn't expect it to do. And I realized I was master of this little mathematical universe that the program was working in, which is a, a good but also dangerous idea. Um, we should, the real world is much messier and difficult than the simple abstract artificial worlds that we build in our machines. I mean, it's easy to be seduced by the numbers and you, you see this in, um, you know, you see this especially in Silicon Valley where, where, where there's, a, there's a story in the book I talk about um, the housing crisis in San Francisco. Um, and it's sad to say that you know there's this immense um, problem of homelessness in San Francisco, one of the wealthiest cities on the planet, and and yet thousands of people every night are queuing up for homeless shelters, and there are not enough places. And how some of the people in working, some of the tech people in San San Francisco have worked out the solution to this problem. You know, the solution to homelessness is to build more homes. The solution to homelessness is, is, to, is, to, is to do what happens in Scandinavia, which is you give people homes, and then they can get their lives sorted. They can deal with, you know, homeless people typically are homeless because they've got a lot of other shit in their lives. They've got, you know, problems with dealing with drugs or alcohol or mental health issues, um, but you provide them a stable base, um, and then they can deal with those issues. It's not teaching them coding, which is what the many of the tech bros in San Francisco would have you believe. Let's go through a couple of the other uh, fascinating examples in the book about artificial intelligence gone wrong. Tell us about the compass tool for sentencing and where that went awry. 
Yes, I mean, this is, this is like the, the poster child of what not to do. Um, there is a tool that is in use in 20 of the 52 states in the United States, which is used by um, judges and other court officials to help decide sentencing decisions and parole decisions. Um, and it's, it's based not on an unreasonable idea, which is that we've got lots of historical data about crime. And we could use that data to try and make more informed decisions. The informed decision that they're trying to make here is, you know, who to put out on parole or who to release from jail. Um, but, you know, there are, there are a number of fundamental challenges with a, a, pro a program like this, not least of which was that it was identified that this program was terribly racist. And you still ask yourself, well, what, why did it turn out to be terribly racist. It was trained on historical data. Well, that's one of the clues. It was trained on historical data. Data captures the biases, the histor historical biases of the system in which that data was collected. And, you know, unfortunately, the, the judiciary system in the United States is somewhat racist. It shouldn't perhaps be too much of a surprise to discover that. That maybe police officers had stopped more black people sentences, um, and we're just perpetuating those biases. When they wrote the program, I mean, they, they tried to avoid this trap. So one of the things that they didn't include was that they didn't include race as one of the inputs, because they realized that if they did, it, it would just pick up this historical bias. So they didn't include race, but they did include zip code. And as most people are aware, there are zip code, there are black poor neighborhoods in the United States and zip code is a pretty good proxy for race. And the, mm. and the challenge is that computers are very good at picking up these correlations. And so the quick computer quickly learned these correlations that uh, which, which were black poor neighborhoods and, where, um, and so perpetuated those biases. Um, a, there's a couple of disturbing coders to this story. One of which is despite the fact that we know it's racist, it's still widely in use. Um, there was a court case that was brought against North Point Corporation, the company that, that built the program Compass, um, and they refused to say how the program worked um, on the grounds of commercial sensitivity. But nevertheless, um, looking at his output, people, um, various investigative reporters, were able to demonstrate that it was, um, was considerably biased, considerably racist. And considerably racist in both dimensions, it was more likely to suggest that black people who wouldn't reoffend would reoffend, and therefore they would be kept locked up or denied parole. And it was more racist in the other dimension, which was it was more likely to say that white people who were going to go on to reoffend wouldn't, and so those people would be mm. um, released dangerously into the community to go on and commit crime that they wouldn't otherwise be done. So it was, it was race, racially biased in both directions, um, uh, in, and not in a good way. Um, but it highlights a fundamental... North Point pushed back really strongly in this court case, defended the program, because um, depending on how you define fairness... It was fair. It was, its accuracy was 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 no worse than uh, for black people or white people. But the errors were all biased in the direction I just told you that that black people were more likely to to be false positives and white people were more likely to be false negatives. Um, and so when you looked at it in that in that direction, it was it was 
it was very unfair. And it highlights an, uh, a thing that I talk about in the book at length, which is that one of the things that we've learned over the last few years is that fairness, fairness means many different things. And one of the challenges is if you're writing computer programs to help you make decisions or even to give them the decisions, you have to work out well, what sort of fairness do you want? And do you want, you know, do you want um, you know, a quality of opportunity or quality of outcome? They're different things. And indeed, there are actually mathematical proofs where you can show that, that they're incompatible with each, mathematically incompatible with each other. If you want equality of opportunity, you can't have equality of outcome. Unless the two groups are literally identical, which they're not because we're not identical, um, then uh, you have to choose one or the other. Then, then it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a societal choice that we're making. And indeed, I think what, it, what it's highlighting is that by trying to automate some of these decisions or help build programs that help us make these decisions, we have to think carefully about these issues that we've sometimes often not really skated over in the past. They're deep societal questions about, well, what does it mean for it to be a fair society? And the problem is that computers are very frustratingly literal devices. They do exactly what we tell them to do, mathematically, what we tell them to do. And so we have to think very carefully, well, what does it mean? What does it really mean for us to build a fair society? What does that really mean in terms of limited resources um, and who ends up with those limited resources? So, Toby, I wanted to push you on a couple of areas where I, sure. uh, my views diverged from yours. Uh, good, you have a, good, good, a good. strong, you make a strong case for a ban on lethal autonomous weapons, and point out that only thirty countries have signed up. Yeah, and you go through Australia not being one of them. Australia not being <laughs> one of them, indeed. And you go through the uh, the counter arguments, and you you very effectively argue that um, it it doesn't make sense to assume that robots will be more efficient or more ethical in fighting wars. So then it made me wonder why you were relatively sanguine about the prospect of superintelligence gone wrong. Why are you very concerned <laughs> about lethal autonomous weapons but not concerned about the notion that when machines attain human-level intelligence, their preferences might be radically out of sync with ours? Uh, so so the, the good news, audience, is that um, we're still a long way off from, as far as we How know. How far? What's your guess? <sighs> Pick a year. It, it's 2062. Okay. <laughs> so that'll happen within the lifetimes of pretty much every student at ANU. It, yeah, it will happen. And if, if I'm lucky enough, I might still be alive just as, to experience that moment. So, yes, it's, it, I, mean, it's, I mean, it's interesting. If you ask most of my colleagues, they won't say it's millennia. Very few people will say it's millennia. Um, most people will say it's going to happen in the next mm. 50 or 100 years. It's huge uncertainty, um, but it is going to happen in the lifetime of our children, probably. And we should, we should stop and pause, because if you think that, that we come back to you know, what I was saying just before you came in the room, which is um, everything in this room is the product of human intelligence, right? And um, the lights, the... Uh, the building itself were, were products of our intelligence. We got to be in charge of the planet for better or for worse because we were the smart one, right? And so we faced the possibility that we are no longer going to be the smartest one. It, I think it would be terribly conceited to say that we are as smart as you possibly could be. We evolved to be sufficiently smart to, to outcompete the rest of the animals on the savannah, but there's no reason to suppose that that is the supremum, the limit of in, 
intelligence. And indeed, the limited, ex uh, limited experience we have so far is that when we can build machines to do narrow intelligence tasks, they do them at superhuman ability. You can't beat the best chess player in the in mm. chess playing computer anymore. You, you can't um, you can't read X-rays as quickly or as well as a computer can now. There's lots of things that we've got computers to do them, and typically, once we get a computer to do a task as well as a human, very shortly afterwards, they're doing it much better, much quicker, much more accurately, much cheaper, much cheaper. So, I think it would be terribly conceited to think that we couldn't exceed human intelligence and possibly exceed human intelligence significantly because there are lots of limitations of our puny brain, right? It has to fit in right. our skull. So it's going to happen. Why, why aren't you worried that the preferences of the machines mightn't be radically out of sync with ours? So I, I think we have to be somewhat concerned about this, about this value alignment problem you talk about. Hmm. But I'm not overly concerned um, for two reasons. One is because I think we have to solve some much more fundamental problems first, like the climate emergency, if, or we won't get to worrying about the machines. We'll, we'll have that seems a cop-out. I would have thought we could worry about multiple problems at the same time. Mm. I'm not worried about nuclear war because climate change is a bigger, a, a, a bigger threat. doesn't seem particularly compelling. Uh, well, more pressing and more immediate threat. I think this, this, this threat will bite us later on. But, but, it, but you're right. We, sh we, we should start, um, indeed, I have colleagues already starting mm. to think about it. But I'm not overly concerned because in some sense we already are experiencing the threat. And that's, we already have superintelligence on the planet. We already have things that are more intelligent than humans. They're called corporations and governments. No, I didn't buy this book, a bit of the book at all. Um, a no corporation is just a legal, legal entity is. which allows humans to work together. It's no it different is, from but, a partnership but, in some sense. There's it no is, but, but no one knows how to build a smart. No one person knows how to build a smartphone. But Apple Corporation does, and Samsung Corporation do. Um, the collective intelligence of those organizations can produce things that are far greater than the capabilities of any humans. No one knows on the planet how to build a nuclear power station. But GEC, the employees of GEC, collectively know how to do those things. Intelligence, you see, this is where we get confused. Intelligence is not a sing singular idea. Mm. It's actually very distributed. Even in our brains, intelligence is very distributed. There are bits of your brain that do vision. There are bits of your brain that do uh, hearing. There are bits of your brain that do reasoning. Um, and there's bits of your brain that, that um, you know, do other, thing, other tasks. The, br the brain is, is quite distributed. Um, and we see that in, certainly, I mean, there's a lovely bit I, I really enjoyed writing in the book about the octopus, where you discover the intelligence in the octopus is even more distributed. I mean, 60% of the octopus's brain is in its legs. Um, it really is a, is a mm. highly distributed intelligence. Um, and so I think we, we get fooled by our perception our, our sentience, our consciousness, which you feel that, you know, there's a you there, that's a, an identity, but your brain is already a collection of different intelligence doing things, and corporations are collections of intelligence, intelligence is doing different things. But 
coming to they're, your they're point. They're aggregations of human human beings. They though, are, which is substantively different, I would have thought, than a machine which is which has attained human level intelligence. As no, it but, will but a, a in machine has. So, so anyone who knows anything about computer architecture knows that computers also have you know there's an APU, an arithmetic processing unit, a GPU, uh, a geometry processing unit. There's different parts of, of the brain that do uh, different parts of the computer that do different types of reasoning as well. So, and then there, you know, we actually, you know, when you talk about the AI, it's not an it's not a single entity, right? Uh, it's it's the cloud these days. It's thousands of computers, even um, AlphaGo, the the computer program that that played um, the world expert at Go and beat. Past a landmark moment when we could play better Go than any human was a collections of thousands of of TPUs and GPUs that were that were coordinated mm. to make the, the make a single decision as where to put put the next node. But it was it was again a very distributed intelligence, um, and you know they were wor very worried that the data connection was going to go down between Korea and California because otherwise they weren't going to be able to make any decisions. Um, so intelligence is a very distributed phenomenon, even if our experience of it doesn't seem to be very distributed. And we already have the value, to come back to your original question, we already have that value alignment problem with corporations. We already realize that corporations aren't acting in the public good. They aren't aligned with human values. That 70% of, of CO2 emissions are come from just 100 corporations who are not necessarily decarbonizing as quickly as humans would like them to do. Um, we see tech companies not paying their fair share of tax. Uh, we see tech companies, we see, I know, the latest, um, you know, egregious behavior from, from was the, the discovery that Facebook in the media bargaining uh, debacle uh, a year or so back deliberately turned off um, the access to emergency services and uh, information for people as a negotiating tactic, making it hard for people to access mm. uh, vital information as a negotiating tactic. And then the management of, of Facebook uh, praised the people who did that in the corporation. So clearly, Facebook's values are not aligned with those of Australian society. Mm. Mm. And we need to fix that. And we are slowly starting to fix that. We are still slowly starting to introduce various types of regulation. Um, we are you know, trying to force corporations, as, as a recent editorial op-ed of yours that I was reading, trying to get the uh, corporations to pay their fair share of taxation because it's not sustainable. Yeah. It's not sustainable. No, no, I to, total, totally buy all of that. But I think uh, I'm And so still... we have a value alignment problem there. And we're trying to push the corporations in a way that aligns their values better with the sort of uh, fair society, just society, productive society that we want to have. And we're not, we're not, we're not there by, by far. Absolutely agree. But, uh, uh, but I'd, I'd still put the probability of human extinction due to uh, human-level machine intelligence at a much higher level than you. So you know, maybe one in 10 over the century. Uh, you seem as though you'd put it at, uh, at way less than that. So I'm interested by that. But I wanted to move on to, to another issue, which is um, you argue that robots shouldn't have rights. Now, if we had apes which attained human-level intelligence, I think there'd be a strong movement in society yep. arguing for apes to have rights. If 
uh, machines have attained human level intelligence and they can do everything we can, why shouldn't they also have rights? Well, they're not built of the right moral stuff. What is the right moral stuff? You're well, saying you, you need, you need to have blood question. to have rights? Is that the point? Um, <laughs> if you can't bleed, you can't have rights? I, 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 I wasn't going to attach blood to it, but I was going to attach consciousness. Sentience, feeling, um, suffering and pain. Those, those are characteristics of, of things that we tend to give rights to. And not just humans, but, but you know, other types of animals. Um, and at least today, the machines we build don't, as far as we can tell, have nothing like that. And uh, it's an interesting question, which is if we build more intelligent machines, at some point, will they ever acquire any sentience, any, any consciousness, any, any awareness of their existence? And if they do, then I will have to change my opinion. I will have to start agreeing with you that mm. then they should be given rights. At the moment, they, they shouldn't be given rights because they're not capable of having rights. And mm. giving them rights would indeed harm the rights of humans and other beings because we would have to make, you know, go out of our way to protect those rights, perhaps allowing suffering to happen to moral beings like ourselves that should have them, should yes. have had those rights because there's always a there's always a trade-off a compromise going on between between these things so so once machines attain the same level or attain human level uh, intelligence you're open to the possibility of them having rights uh, well, that, no, no they, they, they might be zombie intelligence so they might be they might be you know idiot savants mm. incredibly intelligent but having no emotions, no sentience, no consciousness, no awareness, no ability to suffer, um, in which case then I, I, I will continue to do what I do, which I, I will go back to my laboratory tonight and I will torture my robots and take them apart diode by diode, and none of you need to worry because there's no pain mm. or suffering. And, and you know the police are not going to knock, knock the door down and come and um, prosecute me because I have committed no harms. And indeed, there's lots of places where that's a good thing, where, um, you know, as, as an example of the, of the positive things that AI is going to bring to our lives, um, is to look at the mining industry today. Um, it used to be 300 people would die in mining accidents. You go back two decades, 300 people would die in mining accidents every year in Australia, caused um, by, by being crushed by machinery and things like that. Last year it was three dozen people, mm. three dozen too many people, largely because w the, the accidents now happen to machines. The machines get crushed and broken and we don't care. No, it's a great example of your uh, technology giveth point at the yeah. start. Um, your, uh, one of the other things I, I was struck by in the book was in your discussion of consciousness, you seem to sort of implicitly reject the idea that Sam Harris and others make, that our brains are essentially meat computers and that there's nothing outside our decision-making process apart from the biology that we have and the, the external stimuli. Um, there's not a, an external source of, of free will. How do you see that debate, and how does that then shape your the, shape the questions as to how you think about artificial intelligence and and where it might go in the future? Oh, Andrew, you know how to make a scientist squirm, right? You introduce a topic like free will, which is like, if you look at the equations of physics, there's no free will in the equations of physics. So it's an, it's almost this, you know, is, is it a uh, is it an 
is it something that, you know, we're fooling ourselves believing that we are free will? Or is it just, if you put complex systems together in complex environments, they behave in rather unpredictable ways? Um, this is why I think, you know, artificial intelligence is one of the most interesting, interesting, fascinating subjects of our century, which is not just because we might build intelligent artifacts, which is pretty useful, but also because it, it, tells, it may tell us something about ourselves, which is, can it help us understand, well, how do we explain free will in ourselves? Mm. Because the scientists, as the scientist in me says, well, science hasn't really given any answer to that question. Science hasn't really told me what is consciousness. We think it happens in our brains. There's some idea, perhaps, which parts of the brain it might be in, but that, that's about the limit of our knowledge. In terms of you know what is the what is one of the greatest scientific unknowns that we now have left, it is what is our consciousness? What is and yet it's central to our existence. When you woke up this morning, you didn't wake up and say, "Oh, I'm intelligent." No, you woke up and thought, "I'm conscious. Hmm. I'm awake again." That is the experience of being alive. And when we build machines that become become as intelligent, if more intelligent than us will they have the same experience, or will they not? Or can we just switch them off as we can now and switch them back on? You can't do that with humans, but you possibly could do that with intelligent machines. Absolutely, and one of the issues as we uh, approach an election, of course, is that once you have machines that are at that level, uh, and if you're open to the idea of giving them rights, then there's the question of whether machines should vote, uh, which uh, <laughs> becomes particularly complicated with something that can uh, replicate to almost unimaginable numbers. You thought you were coming to an evening of science, but the election has encoded <laughs> into our discussion. Now, uh, we need to take some audience questions, so if people want to ask questions, we have a microphone over on the side. Please pop down and line up in front of the microphone. While people are doing that, Toby, you're a twin. Yes. What is it about being a twin that's made you see the world differently? And is there any <laughs> way in which that's influenced your understanding of artificial intelligence? I, I wasn't expecting that question. I didn't know Andrew knew I was a twin, but that's a... Um, well, the, I mean, the, the interesting thing about being a twin is that, you know, you have this common genetics, and yet we are so different as individuals, and it shows that um, we are more than the sum of our, our genetic inheritance, but they're also we're the product of our environment. And my, my twin um, has, has lived a very different life than me and we've, has a very different character to me, which um, you know, tells me that, that intelligence is, is more than just what you, the program you start out with. Thank you. Um, please introduce yourself and uh, ask a question. Um, hi, my name is Bianca. Um, I, from what I understand and something that's been kind of plaguing my mind for quite some time is that concerns and questions that are being asked about AI seem to be more reactive. So I guess my question is what do you think policymakers should be considering to be coming next to become more proactive in yeah, making policies around um, emerging technologies and that type of stuff? It's a great question. I think you're, I think you're right. Um, uh, policy uh, politicians have been somewhat reactive, um, but partly that was because there was I think there was a, a period um, half a dozen years ago where people thought you couldn't and you shouldn't regulate the tech space, 
You couldn't because somehow it was different. It, was, it wasn't physical. These digital bits um, you know, were attached to corporations that cross national boundaries. And, and you shouldn't because that was going to stifle innovation and, and stifle economic growth. And I think we're discovering actually quite the opposite. You can, but it's entirely possible to regulate the tech space. It's, these bits live in physical places, um, and there are a number of examples of regulation, starting with things like the GDPR, the Google tax, um, you know, the Australian government's response to the terrible tragedy in Christchurch, examples of where we have successfully regulated. And I think actually we're discovering that the most appropriate place to regulate is at the national level. And that that is actually effective. You can find them at 4% of their, of their global turnovers and they will stop and pay attention. Um, and that you should, because real harms are being committed. Um, and as an example of where real harms is still being committed is, um, I find that um, you know, social media, I think, is not adding to our political discourse at the moment. It is taking away from our political discourse. And we're ending up with fake news and filter bubbles and polarization of people. Um, and we've always worried about media. We've always worried that we want people with the best ideas and the most democratic support to win elections. And, to, uh, and we don't want it to be the people who have you know, the most money to put on TV adverts or who are the media barons to win. And yet we have a new type of media, social media. Should be a clue because it's in the name, media that is in some ways more persuasive than old-fashioned media, and yet is less regulated, and is potentially more harmful, because we used to, it used to be, if you were going to lie to the electorate, everyone would see the same lies. But now we all see different lies. People are always surprised to discover that you know, the internet that you see is unique to you. It's the one that the tech companies think pander to your preferences, and it's completely different to the internet that I see and completely different to the internet you see. And you can be told different lies to the lies that I get told because the, the, you know, whoever wants to tell those lies thinks that that lie is more effective with you and that, this lie is more effective with me. And so we're losing that cohesion that social media, instead of bringing us together, is actually driving us apart. Um, and I do think we should think very seriously about, you know, for example, um, why do we let Facebook micro-target political adverts? Facebook always say they don't make much money. <laughs> so it's, uh, why do they let it carry on? Twitter decided not to, to, to get out of that space because they realized it was, it was you know, good PR to do that. Facebook, as far as I can tell, still plays in that space because it makes them important, makes them powerful, even though it is harming our democracy. Thank you. Cool. Thank yes. you. Uh, good evening. Uh, my name's Ed. Personally, thank you for, uh, I guess, putting the book together. Uh, admittedly, I'm only halfway through, but I'm very much enjoying it. Um, I did have a question on the topic of as these intelligent systems and artificial intelligence becomes increasingly prolific and accessible to smaller organizations, in particular, and kind of the general populace, there are some really significant social impacts that go along with the way that these machines functions and the type, the, the way they function the, and the way that they will process information and do all those sorts of things. 
uh, with that in mind, what do you think we need to be doing now to, in order to prepare either smaller businesses and kind of even the general public, I guess, around how we interact with them, how we prepare? Uh, I guess the proxy I have is there's obviously a lot of conversation around cybersecurity and trying to educate businesses and that kind of thing. And this is a related but certainly different uh, area to kind of cover off. And so what uh, either advice or what do you think we should potentially be doing in this space to try and get ahead of that? Uh, three words, education, education, education. Uh, you know, we are in a seat of learning, but I think, I think we, we need all of society to understand the potential of these technologies. Um, if we are going to be active participants in uh, this, the fourth industrial revolution, you need to be informed. You need to be informed of the, of the opportunities and the limitations of these technologies. Um, and as an example, you go to a country like Finland, which has a fantastic program, which is to ensure that 10% of the population does an introductory course to AI. Uh, Finland's only a population of three million people, so that's three hundred thousand people. So it's, um, you know, uh, uh, not a very large city. Um, but we should have the same ambition here in Australia. Um, we should have an ambition to to ensure that that a significant fraction of people of uh, of all ages um, understand the opportunities and the limitations, so that they are more careful with their data. They are more careful with their privacy settings. They do understand the benefits and the risks of the technology. I, I'm, I'm always surprised that you know, we still teach uh, calculus to most of our school children, but calculus is about teaching people about a mechanical world. And we don't live in a very mechanical world anymore. We live in a digital world. And so we should be much more digitally literate, including understanding you know, what are the risks and benefits of technologies like artificial intelligence and that that should be a fundamental staple. Um, and uh, there's a very good thing happening uh, later this year in July, I think it is, the, the Day of AI, where they're going to, um, you know, school, school kids around the country are going to be exposed to a day of artificial intelligence as, as a way of, you know, waking them up to the ideas that, um, you know, I, I got exposed to as a young boy reading too much science fiction. Yes, if I was remodelling the high school maths curriculum, I'd certainly take out trigonometry and put in much more statistics and probability, which I think is far more useful in uh, most of the disciplines people go into, as well as just in living your life. Yeah. Next question, please. Hi, my name's Amber. I was wondering what your views are on whether regulation of the industry will address some of the ethical issues. You gave some wonderful examples around um, where the ethical considerations were outweighed by economic considerations and how that might look, particularly in letting people know where the biases are in data sets or algorithms or AI, so they're aware of that they're interacting with the computer and also that they have the opportunity to challenge, particularly as computers, when they give their information, can create a bias in the person because the person automatically assumes the computer's right. Yeah, no, I, I, I think we do need more regulation. Um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll let you in a secret. I, I, I do have plenty of my colleagues who work at some of these tech companies. And in private, they will tell you, many of them would welcome more regulation. They will say, at the moment, it's a race to the bottom. There's lots of things that they don't particularly want to do, but they will have to do them because they have to compete against 
uh, anyone else and anyone else, unless it's regulated, unless you put a floor on how people behave, they will have to go there. Um, and so there are plentiful places where we should regulate. Um, you know, unfortunately, the last 10, 20 years, um, I think we've learned the challenges of some of the neoliberal ideas of the market will decide and the market is efficient. Well, markets are human institutions and we get to decide the rules that those human institutions work in to allow them to align with public good. Um, and it's not the case that if we just let you know, markets decide. Markets are very poor at doing various things. They're, not, they're very poor at pricing externalities. They're very poor at pricing things that, where there is a long time frame. And this is, this is why we have to design the markets to deal with, for example, the climate emergency more adequately. Um, and we need to design better markets um, to deal with the tech space. I mean, as an example, unfortunately I come back to Facebook or Meta as you prefer, why is it that we put up with all of the bad behavior that Facebook does? The problem is that there's no competition. It's not a free market. If it, the, the problem is if you log out of Facebook, as I did a few years ago, never to log back in, you're the one in some sense who is hurt. Now you can't access various bits of information that's only available on Facebook. Now you can't, you know, find out about that party your friends are having because they announced it on Facebook because it's a, it's a closed garden. It's not a, there's no, there's no competition there because we haven't designed the market in the right way. We should design the market like we design the market for banks where we say, okay, we need to have open banking now. We need to make it easy for people if, the, if they don't like their bank to move to another bank. Um, and so that if you don't like what Facebook is doing with your data, um, you can move to another social media network which treats your data with a bit more privacy, and you can take your friends and your photographs and all the other things that you can't do at the moment. Yes, uh, Joshua Gans and I uh, argued a few years back that the analogy with telephone companies also works. So the original telephone networks uh, in the United States, the companies wanted to uh, uh, not allow interconnection. So they yes. wouldn't connect you to somebody on a different carrier. And, and we argued that if you want to set up a social network, you should allow connections to, uh, to other social networks as well. Yeah, and, and you hint at the, you know, one of the other fundamental problems here, which is that you end up with things that are essentially monopolies. Yes, yes, but, but exactly. To be a, a proper telephone network, you have to be in a monopoly. You want everyone to be connected to the same network. And so, to, and then to ensure that the monopoly behaves in an appropriate way, uh, gives people in rural areas mm. uh, the same price connections as people elsewhere, things that you decide as a society are, are, are the things you want, you have to regulate that monopoly. Now, you have so many fabulous ideas in the book. I want you to finish up with us telling us about Turing's red flag law. <laughs> well, we come back to the story I was saying just, be, just as you were coming in the room, which was, uh, if you remember, if you can remember back to the start of uh, this evening, we, I was talking about Google's duplex where it was pretending to be human by umming and ahhing. And that deceptive behavior is something that, that I suggest, this is Turing's red flag, um, is that something that w we should regulate, that we shouldn't have machines trying to fool us. Um, our time is, of course, the, you know, one of the most valuable things that we have, and machines can waste unlimited amounts of our time. Um, and, and we do. We, we do worry about people's autonomy and, and, and deceptive practices elsewhere, so should we, we should be very worried 
especially when we start moving into the metaverse, where the metaverse is going to be constructed by AI, right? Who is going to be building all these hyper-realistic uh, things that you interact with in, the, in, in real time in the metaverse? It's going to be artificial intelligence. Um, we don't want to be fooled all the time by machines that are pretending to be humans. We should have what I call Turing's red flag. Turing, in honor of Alan Turing, who was not only the inventor of the computer, but also one of the fathers of the field of artificial intelligence, who wrote the first paper, scientific paper, about AI, and red flag in homage to a previous technology where we had to be warned, which were the red flags that used to walk in, people used to carry walking in front of automobiles when automobiles were first invented, and there was automobiles and horses and horses were going to be scared by the automobiles, so people used to walk with a red flag to warn people that there was this new technology arriving that wasn't, was going to, you know, perhaps cause problems and you should be aware and take care of around. Similarly, when you're interacting with AI, there should be a Turing red flag, something that says to you, by the way, Toby, I'm a computer. You know, if you want a human, press five to speak to a human now. Toby, you have a wonderful gift for taking the complex and making it accessible. Uh, the issue of uh, machines behaving badly, the morality of AI, is certainly one of the central questions of our age. Uh, I would urge anyone who hasn't yet picked up a copy to uh, buy one outside. There are still plenty sitting at the table. Uh, and we have a talented author here who will also sign it for you. How good is that? <laughs> uh, thank you very much for coming along tonight. Thank you to... Colin Steele, without whom Aust uh, the Canberra's discussion of books would be much, much poorer. Uh, we are greatly indebted to Colin and to the book program that he pulls together. Uh, and uh, please join me now in putting your hands together to thank Toby Walsh.